0: People are digging their feet and confronting each other and lacking cognitive empathy. The ability that we have to try on, we don't have to agree with it, but to try on somebody else's perspective. When we text somebody, they might not fully embrace what the meaning of those words are until you look at the emoji. Social distancing shouldn't mean social isolation. In-person interactions are the best, but there is still lots of value to a digital interaction. What do we do to help reconnect to this area of the brain that's a better decision maker.
1: Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing Tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do it. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. This was definitely
2: a surreal episode for me, with one of the honestly go-to figures in the whole paleo, whole foods, health, biohacking world. But what's awesome is we dived into really a completely different topic, one that is especially relevant to everything that's going on right now. And I got some long, haunting questions from my entire life answered. I really think you'll enjoy this episode. Wait till you learn about emojis. (laughs) There's just so much. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com brainwash. Those show notes will have links to everything we talk about, as well as a complete transcript of the entire episode. And as per usual, there will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Just comment something that resonated with you from this episode, something you learned, really just any thoughts about the episode on the pinned post at the top of the group to enter. To win something I love. One of the main things we do talk about in this episode is the profound effects that stress can have on our bodies. And friends, I am so excited to tell you about one of my new most favorite devices. In my life, that can help with stress. I am obsessed with this device. I will probably gift it to anyone and everyone for any occasion I can think of. It is that profound. As you know, I'm a huge fan of things like breath work and meditation for dealing with stress. But what if you could actually turn off stress with the touch of a button? That sounds too good to be true, but it's actually not. As it turns out, there's something called sound wave therapy. And what it does is it stimulates the same brain pathways, which are activated by healing touch. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. If you could see me right now, the amount of smiles on my face is just insane. I am here with a guest who, honestly, when I first started this show... A while back now, I made a dream list of everybody I wanted to bring on, and this man was at the top of the list. Of course, at that time it was for one of his other books. Today's conversation will be about his newest book. But let me introduce today's guest. I am here with none other than Dr. David Perlmutter. He's the author of five New York Times best selling books, including Grain Brain, which I feel like everybody <laughs> has read, which is really foundational work. Also Brain Maker, which, which is amazing. And his newest book is called Brainwash, and we're going to be diving deep into that today. Again, most of you are probably familiar with Dr. Perlmutter, but I will tell you a little bit more about him. He is a board-certified neurologist. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He has been published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals which is incredible. He's a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and he's just a really well-known respected man in the whole health biohacking everything sphere. So Dr. Perlmutter, thank you so much for being here.
0: Well, Melanie, I'm very thrilled to be with you today. Thank you.
2: Yeah, actually your book Grain Brain was one of the first books that I, you know, probably read in the whole, quote, paleo world, (laughs) low-carb world. It's been near and dear to my heart for quite a while. But then tackling your newest book, Brainwash, it's a subject that even before our current situation with the whole COVID and quarantine thing is definitely something that I have so many questions about. I think really resonates with people, which is Common feelings of isolation, alienation, social media, the need for likes, how this all affects our brain, how it affects our relationships, but even more now today, I mean... I'm sure you didn't time this with the timing of the book, but it's so relevant today with the whole COVID and quarantine situation. So actually, yeah, that's a question to start things off, because I don't know what the timeline was of writing the book. Did you ever have this moment after the book's release when you were like, wow, this is really, you know, relatable with COVID? Oh,
0: I can tell you that... You're not the first to point this out. I mean, you know, the, I think the real difference this time around, there were a couple, I think, major differences. First, that this was a book co-written with another doctor, Austin Perlmutter, MD, our son, which was a just kind of a momentous uh, event for me in life. The other thing is, you know, all of the other books, Grain Brain, Brain Maker, etc., really dealt with making specific choices. In other words, what are the best choices to make? and Brainwash doesn't do that. It is about how and why we make the choices that we do. In other words, allowing us then to have the ability to make the good choices when we happen to run into good information, whether that information is telling us to eat low carb, get some exercise, get out in nature, pay attention to how well you sleep, make better relationships, express gratitude, you name it. So it's really about our decision making and You are right that I am not trying to pat myself on the back, but it was very prescient because so much about what is happening with COVID is related to the decisions that we make. Let me give you several important examples. First, you know, the decisions that people have made in their lifetimes up until the current time have really paved the way for them to either be healthy or not that decisions with respect to food and other lifestyle choices, exercise, sleep, etc., either allowed people to be healthy or paved the way for illness, for things like obesity, diabetes, coronary artery disease, etc. As it turns out, related to COVID-19, those choices that translated into those disease states ultimately sets the stage for bad outcome. We know that these are the people who've been making bad choices over the years are the ones who are having the worst experience when they become infected with COVID. Beyond that, even our day-to-day choices today, if they're impulsive, if they're based on what I want for myself today, then that is ultimately not necessarily the good framework for making decisions as it relates to our own health, and even beyond that, as it relates to the health of other people who are around us. Simple example, will I wear a mask or not? If I choose to not wear a mask and say, you know what, I'm young and healthy, I'll be fine even if I get this crazy infection. Well, that is decision making based upon only thinking of myself. It is a very self-centered, narcissistic, non-forward thinking, non-empathetic way of making a decision. As opposed to, I'm going to wear this mask, I think even if I get the infection, I'll probably do really well, but I could be infected, not know it, and I certainly don't want to infect other people who may not come out as well as I will on the other side. Older people, people with underlying health conditions, and that is a decision that more involves the area of the brain that we call the prefrontal cortex, the adult in the room, if you will, and that is the real fundamental of what brainwash is all about. It's how, over recent times, our brains have become more wired into the impulsivity, narcissistic centers of the brain, and away from those parts of the brain that allow us to think about how our decisions that we make right now will play out over time. How will they impact us personally? And also, importantly, especially during these times, how they might impact other people living around us and even the planet itself. So our decision-making is front and center right now. Do we decide to do the things that we're told might be good ideas, like social distancing, hand-washing, wearing a mask, etc.? Or do we say, the heck with that, I want to go out and party with my friends and act impulsively and really foster the connection to the amygdala, that impulsive self-centered part of the brain, and just do what I want to do right now.
2: Listeners, you can see now why this is so enlightening and so relevant. So you dropped some keywords in there, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, different parts of the brain, because I do have a lot of, you know, situation specific questions with COVID, for example, but maybe to start things off, we can paint a picture of what actually happens in the brain. And like the, the three different types of the brain, you, you talk about our reptilian brain, the limbic brain, and the cerebral cortex. And, and I'm trying to get away from the irony of we're using our brain to analyze the brain, but I guess that's a whole esoteric conversation that we can save for another time. But would you like to tell yeah, listeners a little bit about the actual makeup of the brain and, and how we do come to form decisions and make choices?
0: Well, it, even to make it simpler, let's just define two areas. And that would be as mentioned, the very primitive part of the brain, which is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is involved in things like fight or flight. And that's actually a good thing when we are suddenly threatened and have to make an instantaneous decision that could be life-saving. So, you know, God bless the fact that we have this amygdala, but it's not the area of the brain that needs to be activated all the time because we you know, we certainly know there are significant downsides to being in a fight or flight mentality, if you will, or frame of reference, if you will, a day in and day out. That is a stress situation. And ultimately, vis-a-vis our discussion five minutes ago, that kind of mentality, being involved with activation of the amygdala day in and day out, does something very important that I think your listeners should know, and that is, it's compromising to our immunity. So the higher levels of activity of the amygdala translate to impaired immune function. There's a, a big take-home message there. In you know these so-called troubled times, so the more that we activate our amygdala by engaging in a lifestyle that caters to what the amygdala thrives on, like fear-inducing situations, like spending a lot of time watching the news that's uniformly aggressive and bad, that activates the amygdala. The more it keeps us away from the other part of the brain, the calming part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. The more we activate the amygdala, the more impulsive our decisions, the more we're likely to make bad food choices, not exercise, not engage in nature, and certainly, very importantly, not make sure that we get a good night's sleep. All of those choices feed back to amplifying our connection to the amygdala and also downregulate or damage our immune function. So I think the overriding theme of our entire time together today needs to be, what do we do to help reconnect to this prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain that's a better decision maker, that is not involved as much in impulsivity, that makes decisions based on looking at a lot of inputs, looking at maybe more of the science, if you will. It's making decisions based upon how we consider the outcome may be in terms of helping ourselves, for sure, in terms of helping other people, and in terms of what the decision might be, how that decision might look, a week from now or a year from now, you know, you're not going to feel any worse to any significant degree if you suddenly start eating glazed donuts day in and day out. But you know what? A year from now, you will have gained weight and your blood sugar will be elevated. Your insulin resistance will be higher. You will have increased your risk for diabetes. And as such, hey, you will have increased your risk for bad outcome from COVID. But moment to moment in the short term, who cares, right? You don't notice that. But your prefrontal cortex, the non-impulsive area, says, hmm, I read somewhere that eating glazed donuts day in and day out might be bad for me for these following 10 reasons, and therefore I choose not to do it. So not to exonerate, you know, the idea that impulsivity from the amygdala is uniformly bad. It is not. I mean, when, for example, we are backing out of the driveway and our vision in the rear view camera sees a child on uh, his tricycle, we impulsively, suddenly, instantaneously put our foot on the brake, right? That's not a decision that we need our prefrontal cortex to make, gratefully. It's not something we think about, well, you know, what's the outcome going to be? Is it a good idea how it play out 10 years from now, you need at times to have instantaneous responses to challenges like that. But we don't want those to be our responses day in and day out to all the incredible number of decisions that we have to make during our waking hours. We need to be able to bring our higher order brain to bear on thinking about our decisions as it relates to things like the foods we eat, the mask we choose to wear or not, the social distancing that we engage, the amount of exercise we get, our choice to do meditation or not, whether we prepare ourselves for a good night's sleep, all of the countless day-to-day lifestyle choices that we make that have a bearing not just on our health, not just on our measurable parameters like our waist-to-hip ratio, our blood sugar, or Vitamin D levels, etc., but even the levels of compassion and empathy that we are able to engage based upon the decisions that we make.
2: This is so incredible. I have so many follow-up questions. I wonder if I can articulate this correctly. So you gave the example of, you know, we automatically put our foot on the brake without even needing to think about it. It's it's automatic. So in that situation, because what I'm trying to understand is Is that being enacted by the reptilian part of our brain, not the prefrontal cortex? My question for that is, if so, was it our prefrontal cortex, which first, because putting the foot on the brake is not something like an animal would would know how to do. They wouldn't know how to drive a car. So is it like we learn these things through the prefrontal cortex, but then they get registered in a different part of our brain? So like these responses that we have in life that, you know, are so abrupt and so instantaneous, I feel like we had to have learned them at one point with the prefrontal cortex. So what determines our daily actions, whether or not they're being mediated continuously through the prefrontal cortex or through like the amygdala?
0: Very, very good question. And I would say in a word, threat. So if a situation is processed instantaneously as being threatening, that becomes it's a very quick circuit involving the amygdala to an engram that you learn in this case moving your foot from the gas to the brake and that happens with we call it reflexively well you know you can learn various reflexes whether it's to in martial arts how you block an incoming punch you can't think about well i'm going to use a particular type of block to block this punch coming in because it's very very fast so we learn these almost reflexive responses that, that become instantaneous the problem is that that sort of impulsive decision making that it just happens instantly can become translated to you know our day-to-day decision making that isn't thoughtful that doesn't involve bringing to bear all of the great information that we are exposed to on a daily basis to help make a better decision you know we all do it we all Call it what you will, flying off the handle, reacting to a comment that somebody a, a look that somebody gave us. We're seeing a lot of that type of behavior play out when we see the division between groups of people and how they are treating each other play out in terms of various protests, you name it. And that divisiveness is, you know, is a representation of something that we call tribalism. I'm right, you're wrong. Our group is right, your group is wrong. And this tribalism, flames are fanned based on our social media interaction, for example. People lock into a frame of mind that is the only way that the world is flat or the world is round. Whichever choice you make is the way that it is, and we won't ever consider interacting with those other people. Now, are these, you know, people who have views about various things that we're seeing play out on, well, wear a mask or not wear a mask. And these are, people are digging their feet and confronting each other and lacking what we call cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy is the ability that we have to try on, we don't have to agree with it, but to try on somebody else's perspective, their viewpoint, how they feel about a particular topic. You know, somebody may, for example, think that there is merit to eating a particular diet and we don't think so but you know but we have to be able to try on their viewpoint and that way hopefully in the perfect world then we come together with these people and we come up with somewhere in the middle an idea whatever it may be that actually is novel and that's how we make progress i used to dig my feet in thinking that dietary fat was a bad thing you know based upon the science that we were seeing 25 30 years ago my goodness if you ate dietary fat, the world would come to an end, you'd get heart disease, and all your children would be born naked. So it was a horrible thing. Now, with time, I began interacting with people who, who began to make it clear to me, as an example, that, you know, humans have been eating lots and lots of fat because it's a dense source of calories, which are coveted, at least through an, from an evolutionary perspective, and maybe it's not the amount of fat that we eat, maybe, just maybe. It's the quality of fat that we eat. And, you know, listening to these people trying on their perspective, engaging in cognitive empathy, activating my prefrontal cortex, you know, sharing the agora, the marketplace and sharing ideas led me to believe that, you know what, maybe they have a point. Maybe they have something there. I just, in fact, wrote a blog uh, that In fact, that was the title of it, because we sure need more and more of that these days because of the incredible polarization that we're seeing where I'm right and you are wrong and I'm not even going to engage with you. If you're, you know, those darn Democrats, those terrible Republicans or oh, independents, how could you ever talk to them? And, you know, we talk about politicians saying that they're going to reach across the aisle and help to bridge ideologies. My vote would be that we don't have an aisle, as a matter of fact, that everybody just sits down and we have a conversation. But, you know, we're seeing this partisanship that is doing nothing more than making things worse, tearing us apart, people digging in their heels. That is activity based upon more the amygdala than it is the prefrontal cortex. So as we become disconnected then from the influence of the prefrontal cortex, that is what we defined in Brainwash as disconnection syndrome, where we lock into partisanship, lacking empathy, narcissistic, impulsive behavior. And gosh, certainly in these, these days, that's not what we need, in my opinion.
2: I could not agree more. I personally come from the perspective of, I always want to engage in other viewpoints, and I'm always looking for why I'm wrong rather than why I'm right. So I love, just love engaging in all different viewpoints and trying to understand, you know, why people think certain things. To that point, so you, you spoke about like narcissism, for example, and how this relates to the prefrontal cortex or not. So are we born with a certain state of empathy and our ability to, to see things from other people's perspective? Is there some sort of level of that that we all have? And then what affects that? Are there some people like, Clinical narcissists who can they literally not understand the other person's opinion? Like they just can't because of their brain.
0: First, are we born with it? I would say, you know, there may be some degree of wiring. I mean, we we learn that there are other people in the world. We are born focused only on our desires and our needs. And that's actually, from an evolutionary perspective, a very good thing that because newborns are needy, they get taken care of because they need to be taken care of. They certainly can't survive on their own. But with time, we we increase our levels of impulsivity and narcissism and self-centeredness based upon the choices that we make. The more we engage in that behavior, the more hardwired it becomes through the process of neuroplasticity. Similarly, The more we engage in empathy, the more empathetic we become. The Dalai Lama famously said, if you want others to be happy, practice empathy. If you want to be happy, practice empathy. And I think that raises some kind of interesting ideas that we would first derive happiness for ourselves by being empathetic towards others. So in a way, it's self-serving. And I think, you know, call it like it is. There's nothing wrong with that. But beyond that, I think that looking at our modern world, we live in a very narcissistic, pro- promoting type of world. It's really all about me and my my Instagram posts and what I do on social media. I ran into somebody recently in a parking lot uh, and we were talking about this COVID-19 experience. And he said, you know, the truth of the matter is, I don't know what all the excitement is about this COVID infection because if I get it, I'm healthy, I'll be fine. Okay, well, I guess that's his frame of reference that if he gets it, he'll be fine. But if he gets it and I'm near him at age 65, which I am, I might not be fine just by virtue of the outcome prediction based upon my age. So, it's a really very glowing example of empathy or lack thereof to say, if I get it, I'll be fine. What's the big hoot? Right. And you see it on the news where they are interviewing college kids at bars saying, Hey, you know what? I'm healthy. I'll be fine. And you know, realize that these kids go home eventually to their parents and their grandparents. And where is the concern for the possible threat to their health, i.e. empathy?
2: I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought and the best light that is so helpful If empathy is understanding other people's viewpoints, so like if he said, Oh, if I get it, I'll be fine. Am I being empathetic? If I understand, okay, from his perspective, if he gets it, he'll be fine. So that makes sense from his perspective. Like when you engage with empathy, do you need to necessarily encourage empathy in other people? Because if a person has something that makes sense to them, even if it's not empathetic, I feel like for me to be empathetic, I would have to accept their non empathetic stance. Does that make sense? I've been thinking about this a lot recently.
0: I think first let's define two types of empathy. First is I think the empathy that more people are aware of it's called emotional empathy means I feel your pain. You know, somebody's going through something that's very challenging and you know we feel sad with not just for them, but we feel sad with them. That's emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy is again this notion of perspective taking that we can see their viewpoint. And I think that it is, again, this question of being heard and hearing. And I, and I find that a lot of times in my interactions with people that there isn't much of the former, that they don't hear you, you know they close their minds to the, the idea that you might offer up a different explanation. For example, that, well, it's not the same as the flu and here's why. But you know, I, I do my best to listen to, and we should do our best to listen to their points of view. And you know, you you've got to vet that idea. You've got to vet, you know, the conspiracy theories. Maybe there, this is how I see it. But maybe there is something to the dangers of five G. Maybe there is some reality to the idea that COVID nineteen was developed as a bioterrorist weapon in a laboratory. Could be. Be open to it. I tend not to believe those things but I'm willing to listen but getting back to the example that I chose I think it's it's a very obvious demonstration right uh, very uh, front and center that the individual with whom I was communicating was clearly focused on seeing the world as it related to him end of story and we're seeing kind of a lot of that play out in terms of you know I think this uh, this COVID-19 is a very interesting study for us in terms of, of human behavior. I think we're learning an awful lot, for example, about who we are as Americans in this situation. You know, it's not, I think, who we have were, but it's, I think, more who we've become. When we think back about the sacrifices that our parents and grandparents made, for example, during World War II, that was a four-year commitment to doing what was ultimately thought to be the best for the herd, not just for the individual. Of course, there were outliers. But now what we're seeing is kind of, you know, every man for himself. We're we're not really interested in what's good for the group, but really what's good for our own personal gain, be it financial or otherwise. And, you know, that level of commitment to the best outcome for everyone mediated by the prefrontal cortex, it seems to be quite lacking as we watch the behaviors that people choose when faced with these current challenges.
2: Yeah, and then also to that point, like you were speaking earlier about what activates the amygdala and it's, you know, this feeling of threat or fear. And so I'm assuming on the flip side of that, we would have the feeling of safety. And I'm so fascinated what you were saying about how the amygdala relates to the immune system. Before I ask my my main question, do you know, does activating the amygdala hamper the immune system? Is it because it's like just not devoting resources to the immune system because resources are, are being spent elsewhere? Or is there actually like chronic damage to the immune system from the, the stress of it all? Or maybe it's both.
0: Getting back to our original description of the amygdala, it is the brain's fight or flight region. When it is activated, we are under a we perceive that we are under threat, and that is stress inducing so this is real threat and which happens at times, or perceived threat, which is a, a sort of a cognitive involvement of the stress response that you know based upon what we're seeing what we're hearing that oh my gosh the, the situation is really threatening now that stress elevates the production of a, you know, mechanistically elevates cortisol, for example, the fight or flight hormone, one of them, stress hormone. And cortisol specifically compromises the immune function. It actually increases inflammation. It changes the array of bacteria within the gut. It increases the permeability of the gut lining, which further amplifies inflammation. So at multiple levels, being exposed to to stress is highly uh, compromising of immune function. It's the reason, for example, that stressed laboratory animals have poor development of their brains, have compromised immune systems, are at much higher risk for developing diabetes, and cancer as well. Cancer being a reflection of a compromised immune system. So if you stress a laboratory animal uh, and then expose it to an infectious agent, those animals that are stressed are far more likely, A, to become infected, and B, to have a worse outcome in comparison to the exact same animal that hasn't been stressed. Now, we're watching that play out in humans as well, and the more people think about it, the more people accept this incredible onslaught of stress-inducing information via the news and what they're uh, getting on social media, the more it's compromising their immune function and the worse outcome they may have should they become infected. So it's good to be informed, but the more you open your your mind to the fear-inducing nature of what's going on around you, the more you will be at risk for having a bad outcome.
2: So basically, the situation that we're in is really the perfect storm of a situation to further perpetuate, you know, susceptibility to the virus, you know, the potential to recover from it. So it sounds like now more than ever is the time to really be engaging in practices which you've discussed, you know, all throughout your book, you know, things like things which do cultivate, bring back that seal, that feeling of safety, that feeling of trust, you know, meditation, mindfulness, breathing, how we're engaging with social media, which which we can go into. Before we get to that, two quick sort of quick COVID questions. What do you think are the implications of babies being born right now during COVID and not having perhaps as much, I don't know if the touch aspect is being interplayed with, with mothers and babies, but at least seeing, you know, masks and not seeing faces when they're born. Do you think there's going to be like generational effects from that?
0: 100%. I think that newborns are getting probably handled and touched and get Olfactory or scent stimulation as much as ever, if not more, because mom and dad are home now all the time. But I think in the toddler and early childhood, you know, that is a fundamental time that children develop, you know, even newborns as well, develop the ability to understand the meaning of facial expression. This is a fundamental tool that we as humans use to understand the nuances of communication. The absence of that induced by masks, I think could have very significant implications in terms of, you know, children and future adults not having as much of that ability. It is a critical part of our skill in terms of communication. For example, when we text somebody, they have our words but they might not fully embrace what the meaning of those words are until you look at the emoji that somebody attached to the text message, right? Then that person has the ability to communicate the subtle meaning of those words with the addition of a facial expression. That's what emojis are all about. They they emote an emotional response. So I would strongly agree with the idea that that certainly does represent a threat, but, you know, recognize that young children are at home with whomever is at home, and there's plenty of non-mask time available in that environment. Hopefully, that'll be enough for them to develop these skills.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up about the emojis. That that explains so much now. Like, so I'm the person, because I'm writing, you know, I'm communicating with a lot of people every day, writing a lot of emails, and I, like, have to overdo the emojis all the time, because I I feel like with just words, I don't know that my message will be received the way it would be received if I was talking to them. I've just known that about me and I didn't really know why, but now it all makes so much sense.
0: And just look at when the emojis pop up for you to choose one, look at all the different expressions that you have access to. And I would tell you that humans have, you know, many fold more subtle expressions that communicate a lot of information.
2: I actually just took one of those tests where you are like looking at faces and facial expressions to evaluate your emotional strength, I guess, of your brain. It gives you a score. But doing it, I was really starting to realize like the nuance of facial expressions and all of these things that we have attached to it. So like you're speaking about toddlers, you know, or kids growing up right now and not having that normal exposure to faces, seeing faces on TV or the computer, does that provide a benefit?
0: It does. You know, I I would say that in-person interactions are the best, but there is still lots of value to a digital interaction. We recently interviewed two Oxford researchers exactly on this topic. And the, the the, the title of our interview was, Social Distancing Shouldn't Mean Social Isolation. In fact, I wrote a blog about that. We should not socially isolate. We should socially distance, of course, but we need to remain engaged with other people like you and I are connecting right now it's totally you know audio but you know even with the audio there are nuances in your inflection of course that carry important meaning in terms of the context and the the meaning of your of what you're trying to transmit so so that said i think that it, it is not as ideal it is the way of the world but i would say that you know, there're plenty of other notions of reality that are being imparted into the developing mind uh, about which we will learn in the coming years. You know, this notion that being near another person is a threat. It's very powerful if a mother and child are in public transportation and the child happens to be too close to another person who's wearing a mask and mother drags, uh, pulls on that child's arm and telling them they need to be further away. You know, this stranger danger has become much more amplified in that does what? It it amplifies the way that child perceives the world around him or her and sets them up for more of an amygdala-based reality, which, as mentioned, is involved with less thoughtful decision-making, perceiving the world as being more threatening than it maybe is, and responding in that way to the challenges of the day.
2: One more last very random question, but it relates to all of this and it's something I've wondered forever. I don't know who else I would ask. I remember growing up watching animated TV, like Disney movies and stuff. There's only been a few times in my life when a parent or an authority figure told me something and I was certain they were lying straight to my face. And I remember when I was little watching Disney movies and my mom saying that Aladdin was not a real person. And I just remember thinking, but he is a real person. And then I... Like he looked like the, the 2D, like the animated looked like real people to me. And I've talked to other people and they said they remember that as well, not knowing the difference between reality from 2D versus real life. Is that something in the brain when we, we start to see the difference between pictures and flat presentations of humans to real life?
0: absolutely that is something that begins to take shape around 5 years of age but never it never fully there is always a time when things that are seemingly real that are ne- that are not real that may stick with us i mean whether it's believing in santa claus and suddenly being told that it, santa claus doesn't exist and you can't you just can't embrace that at first and then you you know, after multiple exposures to that reality, you change your view. And, you know, it, it. it's a wonderful quality of the human brain to have that malleability that it can adapt and accept things. You know, you look at something and it's definitely one way until somebody suggests another explanation, and then suddenly it becomes that explanation. And you say, oh, now I get it. But you have to be open to that. You have to be open to those alternative views alternative explanations to have that resilience and plasticity of brain function to allow that to happen and a lot of that is what we talked about earlier this ability to share or at least participate in other points of view that Aladdin is not real but maybe Jafar is real or whatever it was <laughs> and that you know I'm that there is no santa claus the world is not flat and the, this particular political party, they're not all bad people. They have their viewpoint, and we have our viewpoint, and it's, maybe we should be listening to each other.
2: The second thing I remember was when the music teacher told us in like probably kindergarten that on the Weather Channel, that there wasn't actually a map behind them. And I was like, but there is a map.
0: But I'm seeing it. I am actually seeing the map. How can you tell me it's not there? So categorically, what you're telling me can't be true until you take a field trip to the studio and you realize it's a green screen and they're actually looking to a monitor offset. And then you say, oh, now I get a G. You were right all along. You know, I'm able to participate in your frame of reference.
2: Is there a reason? Because like I said, normally I feel like I really try to empathize with other people's viewpoints, but on the occasion when I do feel like I'm right about something and then I'm maybe debating something with somebody else, if I find out that they were in fact right and I was wrong, I feel really embarrassed. Do you know why we, we would get a sense of embarrassment or shame when, we're, when we find out we're wrong? Well,
0: because your, your thoughts and your frame of reference have until that time defined who you are and now that was threatened. So who you are is threatened, is challenged, And that's actually uh, a part of maturity, I think, is the ability to accept that and move forward. To be able to change your, your views and your discussion about a a point, I think is a, is a very, very good thing. There was a a interesting, to be nice, a magazine article written about me in a national magazine a couple of years back. And, you know, it was, to call it like it is, it was, it was scathing. I mean, I was attacked from every perspective and, I think the biggest attack that was levied upon me was that I had changed my messaging that, you know, Dr. Perlmutter used to tell us that we should be on a low-fat diet, and now he's totally gone against that by telling us that we should eat things like olive oil and avocados. Yeah, that's what you'd like your scientist to do, and certainly healthcare provider, to be up-to-date and be able to have that ability to change messaging based upon current science.
2: I will say I empathize with you completely on that one. I mean, I don't like to qualify things as pet peeves, but the thing I always say is I reserve the right to change my mind because we learn new things and how can we not change our minds when presented with new evidence? So I always think it's so, it's sad that people get attacked for changing their message if it's because they, you know, challenge their pre-existing beliefs and have a different idea now.
0: Yeah, the people who, who challenge you are those people who want to lock in and they are behaving again from an amygdala perspective that one way is right and never will we embrace the ideas of another because we are definitely right. Our team is the winning team. End of story. And I don't want to discuss anything further because we are always right and you are always wrong. You know what? Whether you watch CNN or you watch Fox News, one side is right and one side is wrong. I say, if you're going to watch news, watch them both. If one side is more in tune with your ideology, then make sure to watch the other one just so you can maybe gain a different perspective. In terms of what you read, it's, it's worthwhile to, to, again, read things and learn about other perspectives. It's how we visit the agora, the marketplace, as humans and share ideas and ultimately come up with novelty in terms of ideas and solutions to problems. We are seeing an incredible demonstration of this right now in the scientific community where researchers have really dropped their guard and are openly sharing information and ideas about coming up with novel approaches to dealing with COVID-19, and that's helping to move the ball down the field. It's only this isolationist Patent protecting behavior focused on profit that doesn't lead anywhere that doesn't embrace the idea of sharing of information for the common good.
2: And then also to go a little bit deeper into social media and all of that, because you make a, a very strong case throughout Brainwash that you know there are a lot of negative effects on our our brains, how we engage with the world, our social connections, our health. I mean, just all across the board. What, do you think there was a timeline on that? Like, like when the internet first started or when instant messaging first started? Like, Do you think when we first had social media, did it get exponentially more problematic? And is it getting exponentially more problematic? Is there a healthy way to engage with social media?
0: Yes. And what we talk about in the book is we use the, what's called the test of time and that's an acronym, T-I-M-E, for your online experience. T, how much time are you going to dedicate to your the task, whether it's looking at your high school group or learning about different types of seashells? How much time today are you going to allot for the task at hand, you know, researching to write a book, whatever it may be? Uh, I, Do you remain intentional throughout that experience? What is your goal? What do you hope to accomplish? Again, you want to reconnect with your long lost boyfriend or girlfriend from the class of whatever, or you want to learn about uh, interplanetary dust, whatever. What is your intention? And do you remain validating that intention throughout your time online, being therefore not taken away from your task by pop-up ads and clickbait? M, are you mindful? While you're involved in the task at hand, you remain with the program uh, focused on what you're trying to accomplish. And finally, E, is it enriching? Is it net positive? When it's all said and done, you feeling like that was time well spent? Or did two hours that you, you allotted 20 minutes and two and a half hours later, you say, gee, why did I do that? So you know, staying with the, the test of time, I think is very important. To your point about the role of social media in locking us into ideology, I think that it just played upon human nature that we have, that our tribe has viewpoints that need to be the, the viewpoint of everybody because they're right and they're better. That's, you know, that characterizes the human experience. You know, it's what wars are fought over because they don't believe what we believe. They have a different set of morality. Uh, they have a different, they pray to it. Their religions are different, whatever it may be. So that has been, you know, kind of a definition of of, human, of humanity. And there may certainly be some upsides to that, to this notion that ideology kind of defines the herd. And we're going to stick to that because it's what's worked for us. You know, throughout the past hundred, two hundred thousand years, our group has done this. It's worked for us because we're still here. Let's keep doing it. So there's an upside to that. And, and that is a a powerful hack then by the, the social media that we experience the hack into our sense that we want to belong to a group that sees things in a particular way. That's what underscores the development of these particular sites that cater to particular ideology. There are many ways that some of our most primitive emotions and things that we are drawn to are hacked into. Let me give you another example. When I lecture, I often, I ask, I say to the group, look, I don't need a show of hands to determine how many of you, what percentage of you have a sweet tooth? Because the answer to the question is 100%, means everyone, whether they want to raise their hand or not, everybody likes sweet." And I'm not pointing fingers. So do I. We all were hardwired for sweet. Why? Because that's in our hardwiring to tell us a couple of things to speak to our genome, to tell us that winter is coming, to amplify our body's production of insulin so we lay down fat so that we will survive. It tells us that fruit is ripe. So it's the best time to eat fruit when it is the sweetest. It has the highest level of phytonutrients. So we have sweet desire hardwired into our brains to seek out sweet because it's almost never available. It's only available in the very late summer, early fall when the fruit that our hunter-gatherer forebears might have discovered, you know, and perhaps a little honey here and there if they're willing to climb the tree. But that said, you know, sweet foods are something we didn't have year-round, but yet We're still having this sense that sweet is good and we crave sweet, and that's like the social media hacking into our desire to be socially involved with others. The sweet tooth is hacked in by by the addition of sugar to 68% of the more than 2 million foods sold in our grocery stores. More than 68% have added sweetener. Why? Well, it's not to preserve the food. It's not to make them any cheaper. It's because we'll eat more of it and buy more of it, better for the bottom line of that company, if you add sugar to things that you would never expect. Tomato soup. I think it's the second ingredient after water, even before the tomatoes. So these are hacks that are being exploited into our very deep operating system, our very deepest nature. Being a social animal is hacked into by the various social media sites. Being social was very powerful for us in terms of letting us survive. We would survive better in a group when we could cooperate, when we could have segregation of jobs where some people would hunt, some people would gather, whatever. But that's important for us as a survival mechanism, like the sweet tooth, a survival mechanism, like our desire to have things which, you know, we see people these days just unable to control their online buying. Those primitive, deep-laden desires that we, that we have, which are part of the hardwiring, are being powerfully exploited. So yes, social media is making that situation worse. And that's, you know, really why it's so effective and pervasive, because it hacks into this primitive desire that we
2: have. Is that a reason you feel good when you like something that lots of other people are liking because you're engaging with the tribe?
0: Exactly. And you like and you are liked in return. And through you know, this dopaminergic pathway, you get a little stroke. You're feeling a little bit. Um, you're part of something. And being part of something is like the sweet tooth. It's the sugar. It's the same reward because they liked my picture, I am part, I'm accepted, I'm part of a group, you know, and you don't get likes all of a sudden uh, with a post, then that is, you're you're thinking you're thinking you're being cast out of the group, and that is stressful. What does that do? Amplifies cortisol, amplifies inflammation, amplifies impulsivity. What happens? You make bad decisions.
2: Quick question about the sweet tooth, because that was fascinating when I read that in your book about how the sweet taste actually does correlate to our sense of safety. Do you think that's a reason people on low-carb or ketogenic diets, like some people don't do well and like it's too stressful for them? Does it somehow relate in part to the, the feeling of safety that we get from the sweet taste and some people never getting that? Maybe it's a problem, maybe for women especially. I, mean, I
0: think that's an interesting consideration, but I think there are some more low hanging fruit, not to get back to the sweet analogy, but lower hanging fruit that might explain why they're not, why, let's say, a ketogenic diet is not tolerated by everybody. And I would say, first of all, we know that there are various genetic polymorphisms or subtle variances in, in genetics that have a role to play in terms of how well people are able to create ketones and use them as fuel, number one. Number two, we also know that the uh, that in, engaging that diet, the on-ramp, in other words, keto, what we call keto-adapting, ad- becoming keto-adapted, is somewhat difficult in some people, especially in those whose diets have been really focused on carbohydrates for a long period of time. So there is a period of time called keto-adaptation that's a little rough For some people more than others. So that's really also very important to recognize. And finally, I think that, and I don't mean to be too mechanistic here, but when you are now in ketosis, you're creating these ketone bodies that float around in your bloodstream and in the urine as well. And with ketone bodies as call them particles in the urine, it tends to induce what we call a diuresis, meaning basically in ketosis, you tend to pee more. All right, that makes it very, very strict. People understand that. And when you pee more, you lose things like uh, electrolytes, potassium especially, and, mag- and uh, magnesium. I like think another reason people have difficulty tolerating keto diet is because they become electrolyte depleted. So I think, you know, this is kind of a handful of, of things people should think about in terms of why they might not be necessarily <laughs> loving a ketogenic diet. And lastly, I'd say that there's a lot of good literature lately that is starting to put value on cycling between a good low-carb diet as well as you know, a full-on ketogenic diet from time to time.
2: I was just thinking about some people do keto and low-carb diets and advocate no sweet taste, you know, so no things like stevia, I would not personally advocate artificial sweeteners, really something like stevia. I was just wondering if maybe some people, if adding stevia to their low-carb meal, maybe could they instigate a feeling of safety with the meal, assuming they don't get like a reactive hypoglycemia type situation. That's tangents for another day.
0: Well, again, if it's an artificial sweetener or, or if it's something natural like stevia, it, it won't induce a hypoglycemic, reactive hypoglycemia. So what a reactive hypoglycemia really is, is reacting to carbs, reacting to to sugar. And what happens is, you know, you overcompensate with respect to your insulin secretion, and then your blood sugar is driven really low. So it's actually, strangely, not a response to the ketones, it's a response to, to carbs and sugar specifically, it's a response to elevated blood sugar.
2: eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalanceCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So, again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanyavalon'scloset.com. That's closet.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's closet.com. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair, and it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD and historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through nad ivs and nad shots I actually never did an nad iv for a few reasons one they are extraordinarily expensive two I've been doing the shots which i liked because they were easy to do that said they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards and I've heard that the iv makes a lot of people feel unwell so if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier i can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done plus with the ivs you have to sit there for potentially hours so basically ivs were a no-go for me so like i said i was doing the shots but i was like i wish there was an easier way to do this then a company called ion layer reached out to me anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ionlayer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm gonna use them. For the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently, and I wear these on the plane, there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat I am obsessed with a company called Dry From Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, Low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine, and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing, and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. And use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfromwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. The mechanism of action I was thinking was, I feel like some people, if they're doing low carb, their blood sugar is low. And then if they add in stevia, it could perpetuate an insulin response, drop their blood sugar lower, and they get a reactive hypoglycemia, even though there was never sugar present.
0: I hear what you're saying, but I don't think you're going to see much insulin response to stevia. It's the reason that you know, stevia and monk fruit, as a couple of natural sweeteners, they don't have that sort of glycemic response. So that's why people seem to like them. To Just to go a little further, as far as the artificial sweeteners go, there is plenty of data to indicate that through multiple mechanisms, it's not a good choice. Not the least of which are the changes that have been well described in french and israeli literature to the gut bacteria to the microbiome uh, actually leading to a situation that amplifies your risk for type 2 diabetes because you're using a yellow packet or a pink packet or a paisley pack whatever packet you is on the you know on the table oddly enough being associated with increased risk of the very thing you're trying to avoid 100%.
2: 100%. I remember when I was first doing research on artificial sweeteners, like initially I was doing the research on insulin and blood sugar and things like that. But now exactly what you said, I think the the effects on the gut microbiome are potentially very, very dangerous and not wanted. A few more quick questions about the the groups that we were talking about with the, with the social media. So we have, you know, Facebook groups, for example, which seems like they are us creating a, uh, you know, a virtual representation of our normal s- groups that we would have in real life. And so all of the the implications of what would happen in a, a normal group may extend to the social media form. So that's right, you know, we're getting all of these effects on our, our amygdala, our, our sense of connection, our sense of loneliness. What about for people whose social media is part of their job or part of, so like, for example, I have a Facebook group. I mean, it's not super huge. It has around 5,000 members, and I say not super huge because my co-host, Jen, of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, her groups have like 100,000 members, which is insane. But I'm personally struggling because I like I love that group, and it does feel in a way like my safe place, and everybody there is so kind, so supportive. We, we discuss all different things. We have all different viewpoints, but I'm struggling to figure out still what is a healthy relationship with virtual engagement with social media and things like facebook groups for example when i was reading about your time test in the book i was going through it and i was applying it to my engagement with these groups like time restricted the max amount of time for accomplishing the goal the goal is growing the group so in a way the time would be i don't know like it could in a way it could never end i could just keep doing it i intentional does it benefit me It does am mindful awareness to how I'm using it and how it's affecting me. I discuss all of these biohacking things, all the stuff about health. I meet other people, um, it is really wonderful. And then enriching is it providing knowledge it is. So my engagement, for example, in that group, and hopefully this can apply to other people who feel like they are engaging in some sort of social media where they do feel like it's really benefiting them, but it's a thing where you could do it all day (laughs) or you could not. So, I struggle with this. I'm like, how, how do I best engage? Like, how do you best engage with a virtual world when it could just always keep going?
0: No, I think you brought up some very, very good points. But I would say, keep in mind the notion that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. So the average American spends more than six hours a day in front of one screen or another, whether it's a, your computer, your tablet, your smartphone, you name it. And through the lens of doing one thing and not doing something else, it means that there's less time available for the other important things that we need to be both physically and emotionally healthy. The exercise, nature, exposure, interacting with others, practicing compassion, planning our meals, cooking our meals, and making sure that we're going to get a good night's sleep. Those are all you know, equally important. They're on the top of the list as well. So I think when you recognize that those things are up for being compromised by the fact that you're spending an awful lot of time fanning the flames of this particular social media group it would i think tend to reframe it number one and number two simply already as has happened with you you're aware of the fact that this is i don't mean to be a judgmental but it's insular you know you there's a messaging in within your group There are guidelines within your group. There is a mentality within your group. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm simply saying it's insular by its very nature. You're either in it or you're not. And if you're in it, this is what we will talk about. So now that you recognize that and your other participants, your other Facebook followers recognize that, hopefully you'll explain this to them, that it is healthy to engage other groups. It's healthy to see what the next door neighbors are doing, you know, online visit another group, become a part of another group and try that on. That's the cognitive empathy that we spoke of earlier. Now, you know, this is what you're doing right now. You're, you're doing your best to build out the group, but I would, I would caution you to look at it through the lens of if you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. So there are other things in your day that are valuable that need to be considered.
2: Okay. That's really practical. Two things. So, cause there's like group rules with Facebook groups. Our only rule is you have to be kind and you can talk about whatever you want as long as you're nice about it. So like (laughs) basically like be empathetic. I think it says something about understand other people's viewpoints and then the other rules don't judge other groups. But yeah, I guess that's very practical what you said. Like if it's an interfering with other aspects of life that, you know, should be honored, then that's probably an issue. Do you know if there is an indication or something around social media at certain times of the day, for for example, like in the evening, like when I want to go to bed, I have to turn off social media before. And I can't, like, I have to turn off Facebook. I have to turn off everything. And I can't let myself even check to see if somebody has reached out to me because it just like, it wakes me up. And I I wonder if that has something to do with like in the natural world, we wouldn't, have been engaging with people at night, like when we were sleeping.
0: Well, and I mean this uh, from my heart. I think that you are getting this positive reinforcement from what you see on your with your social engagement. It, much as e- eating sugar, you know, you're getting this positive feedback that is hard to pull yourself away from. And I think that you know it, it's valuable. We talk about it in the book to try to derive enjoyment and validation from other sources. A. B. Why would you not want to be engaged in anything online after dinner or in the evening is because of two reasons. It's, you know, there's blue light exposure that's going to compromise your production of melatonin, therefore not help you get a good night's sleep, which is really important. And, you know, there's a lot of information that you may be exposed to through this digital interaction that may be you know, challenging or stimulating in such a way that it again could compromise your sleep. So to be doing this before you go to bed at night is not what I would recommend.
2: Agreed. Yep. I shut it off. The blue blocks glasses go on. Really quick questions about dopamine because you were talking about the addiction reward pathway and you you discussed in the book how dopamine is, well, I guess we can talk about what dopamine is, but a lot of people think that we are addicted to dopamine when really dopamine is not the actual, reward itself. It's the the thing driving you to get the reward. I was wondering, is it possible though to be addicted to the drive to get the reward? Oh, without
0: question. I mean, I think that, you know, that that makes a lot of sense. The dopamine is not the ultimate goal. Dopamine is really the craving kind of neurotransmitter. And ultimately there are a lot of different neurotransmitters, not the least of which are endorphins that are involved in this pathway. So, you know, in a way, when we recognize that constantly feeding in to these pathways that ultimately stimulate us by stimulating our endogenous morphine, that's what an endorphin is, endogenous morphine receptors, kind of offers up an understanding how there's such a big problem in in our society with opiate dependence, because our society is gearing our brains to need that opiate kind of hit day in and day out. Certainly the availability of the opiates, you know, the fact that they were really pushed on doctors to use them, et cetera, played played into it. But we, by our nature of wanting to satisfy ourselves day in and day out, I think set the stage through enhancing the requirement of our receptors to be stimulated. These endogenous morphine receptors, we set the stage for a quick fix by by taking opiates
1: do you have thoughts on
2: a dopamine fast i know that's like a, a thing <laughs> in silicon valley apparently
0: well no i think that we do that we we are are distancing ourselves from this reward catering to our reward systems when we are involved in for example meditation when we're not thinking about our next post of what we're going to eat who we're going to hang out with, you know, the fact that we're going to succeed at one thing or another. Meditation is is very much a way of, of helping to calm that whole system down, uh, you know, and those effects last well beyond the time of meditation.
2: To that point, so how did you decide to develop because you have your 10-day your detox program? It was interesting to me because I feel like, you know, each day with the different things that, you know, be it meditation or diet or social connection, you know, these are things that we could spend, like we could write a whole book alone on each individual one. So how do you find people when they go through the program? Is it like you kind of learn a little bit about how each of these feel, and then you can, you know, further implement all of them into your life? What does that practically look like, like taking charge of our brain
0: Sure. And it just take a a little bit of time just to to set the stage, meaning that it's all about gaining the ability to make better decisions. However, we find an on-ramp to better decision making will serve us well. For some people, making a better decision will happen when they dedicate to getting a better night's sleep. Not getting a good restorative night's sleep is associated with as much as a 60% increased activity of the amygdala meaning that don't sleep well make bad decisions eat bad food don't exercise etc etc so you know we go through all of the entrance ramps onto the highway of better decision making and it turns out that some people will gravitate towards something finding it a lot easier and frankly it doesn't really matter to us how You know, what on ramp you get because then the other decisions become easier. So let's say it happens to be for you. Let's concentrate on a better night's sleep. Now you're getting more sleep. The next day you're able to make better decisions. Now you are primed for making a better decision as it relates to getting 20 minutes of exercise or beginning a meditation program or getting out into nature. Or keeping a gratitude journal, whatever it may be, the other aspects of our program. So while they're linear in terms of how they're described, it may well be, as we mentioned in the book, that people want to use one particular day as their on ramp, that this is something they can do. Maybe somebody just says, Look, I am not in a place where I am gonna exercise. That is just not gonna happen. Fine. Why don't we start with you with a gratitude journal? You could do that, can't you? Get a A little journal and each day write down five things that you are grateful for. That's it. That's where we're going to start. What does that do? That re-strengthens this connection to this better decision maker part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. Then moving forward, you know, they say, well, you know, now that I've been keeping that gratitude journal for the past week, I think maybe I could just walk around the block one time. What? So it's just all about for each person to find out where he or she is comfortable in making that first step. That's what puts the foot in the door. And once the door is open, then we've got access to the entire decision-making process.
2: I love this so much. It speaks to something that resonates with me a lot, which is, I feel like on the one hand, I, I do I have all these tools and all these techniques and all these things I'm you know, constantly trying to do to you know, create a certain state within my mind. So, you know, the meditation, the mindfulness, the gratitude, the tapping, the journaling, and then with, with sleep, you know, the, the blue blocks, the, the red light, like like there's all, all these different things that every single day that I go through. And so I'm torn in a way cause I'm like, Oh, there's so many things that are wonderful and they're wonderful tools moving towards this, I guess the state of, you know, safety or feeling of wholeness. But then I think if my brain did just feel safe and whole, I feel like I wouldn't need any of these. So I'm like, how do I interpret all of these things I'm doing as, you know, warranted and worthy and not signs that they're bandages or there's something that I need?
0: And and I'll tell you why it, with all due respect, will probably never happen. And you know, if it does happen, we call that that the state of enlightenment. And that is a place where you are totally content and you're feeling totally at peace, putting your guard down. And truthfully, that's not necessarily a good state to be in. We have to have a guard. We have to be able to recognize danger. You know, there is a, a particular syndrome, I think it's called Williams syndrome, where these individuals just produce an overabundance in their brain of oxytocin, and they trust everybody, and everything's wonderful. And they get abused. They get taken advantage of. So I, I think that there is a place in our world for understanding and responding to things, I wouldn't say negatively, but I think, you know, with some caution and that things are not all perfect around us. But, you know, on the other hand, we want to do our best to be as trusting as we can, to do to be as forgiving and compassionate as we can be, and, and recognize that sometimes we respond in ways that we don't like and that you would say, "Uh, it's not like me. Why did I do that? But we move forward because we're human.
2: I love that. I love that. I will keep doing all the things (laughs) and not, you know, stress about doing all the things. I guess it's that secondary emotion that comes in that is not necessarily helpful. So, well, this has been absolutely amazing. Listeners, I cannot recommend enough that you get Dr. Mutter's new book, Brainwash. I mean, we just barely grace the surface. There's so much in there. There's science, practicality, details. It's, it's just really, really a wonderful book. And I, I really, really applaud you for it. And like I said, coming full circle, especially right now with everything that's going on, I feel like it can really, really, really benefit us.
0: Well, I appreciate the just the ability to spend time with you to make a new friend, <laughs> even though it's virtual. And I appreciate those comments about Brainwash. Again, we had, we had no prescience about you know why it would be needed, but now that it's in, since it was launched a few months ago, now that it's in 18 languages around the world, I think that, like you say, it, it really is showing some application to what's going on in the world. Uh, we're living in a world that is very much... Divisive and tribalistic in terms of, you know, one group being right, one group being wrong. And I think we'll move past it. I think that goodness will prevail. And and as we are all challenged by this, this is a world war that we're in right now. I think we will uh, rise and figure things out and, and be better off in the long run.
2: It's truly incredible. Just quickly to that point, I always find it really interesting when you're first exposed to some information and you learn something, but you know, for whatever reason, you don't have a personal reason to really let it resonate with you. So like I read your book before because I actually I live in Atlanta. So I read your book before a lot of the like political unrest and racial and social unrest happened. And when that all happened, I I was like, wow, I really need to reread, you know, the parts of this book that are talking about you know, conflict and empathy and understanding other people's viewpoints and you know how to you know what a healthy version is of that. So it's just it's been really a really wonderful resource. For listeners, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash brainwash. So I'll put a link to everything there. And then so The last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just something you'll probably appreciate, it's just because I've started to realize more and more each day how important mindset is, how important gratitude is for not just our mindset, but our health and all of our well-being. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Oh, I already have a big smile on my face. I'd say that I'm grateful from a personal perspective that I've been able to identify my skill set. And my skill set is to be able to take information and make it understandable to others. So I'm grateful that I identified that. I'm grateful. I hope it, I can go more than one, <laughs> keep the timer going. I'm grateful for all the re- wonderful relationships I have, beginning with my family, that we uh, have such an understanding relationship with so many people. And it's so enriching for me to have relationships with others. And so, beginning with my wife and children and then moving out from there, that is uh, always been a very, very big source of gratitude in my life. So there you go.
2: I love it. Well, thank you so much. I really mean that. I mean, I just want to take a moment and be grateful for this moment because you're such an amazing human being. Your work, like I said, it's been, because I just looked up when like Grain Brain was released because I really fell into the whole paleo type world-ish around like 2000 well 2012 or so it was 2012 2013 which is around when you released that book and I'm pretty sure that's when I first read it so you've been like a, a mentor to me even though I don't realize such a figure and I've just been so in awe of, of all the work that you've been doing so having this moment to thank you for taking the time to have this conversation answer my question share it with my listeners and I really I really look forward to your next book do you have one in the works
0: uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm probably going to go back to basic science for the next book. There's something I've, for whatever reason, become really enamored with in terms of understanding. And I'll just tell you that it's the role of fructose, the type of sugar called fructose, in human health and illness. And
2: I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> really? This is like what I think about every day.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, then what do you know? Great minds think alike. Anyway, you have a great mind. I don't know about me. But that said, I'm really taken by the mechanisms, by the interaction for example with dietary salt, by the role that fructose plays in metabolism, in the creation of metabolic syndrome in terms of weight gain, and really as such then as a kind of a pivot point for most of these chronic degenerative conditions that are crippling humanity. So I'm going to do a deep dive into the science of fructose. I'm really fascinated by it.
2: I literally have on my to-do list, have an episode about fructose because I'm just torn because there does seem to be two actually very at-conflict viewpoints, which is one reason I am so fascinated by it. And I don't know if you're familiar with the whole work of Ray Peet. Are you familiar with his work? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, they're very much, I mean, they love fruit, which is not isolated fructose, but they're very, that. That tribe is very much of the opinion of, you know, a glycogen fueled body, you know, fructose being actually very healthy fuel for the body, you know, liver glycogen being something we really want to boost. And on the other side we get you know, that that's like the last thing we should be focusing on, or, you know, that we should be avoiding that. So I'm haunted by this, by this question. (laughs) That's why I think about it all the time. So yeah,
0: and I'm going to tell you, I will certainly have an opinion, but I, I think it's going to be fair, as I've always tried to be to vet both sides of the story, so that people realize I've seen, you know, both sides of the literature, and therefore, here's what I've come up with. But You know, when I wrote Brain Brain, I thought that having a lot of carbs and sugars was not necessarily good for your brain and your body. And I I feel that pretty much since 2013, that most of the science has lined up kind of supporting that notion in light of the global epidemic of obesity and Alzheimer's. So we'll see. But I'd like to raise, you know, fructose to a level of conversation. I think a book is a way of doing that.
2: I am really excited. Talk about an exciting teaser.
0: You're the first to know.
2: Oh really? <gasps>
0: I haven't mentioned that on any podcast. So there you go.
2: Oh my goodness. I just got really excited. Okay.
0: In fact, my publisher doesn't even know it yet.
2: Oh man. Well, your secret's safe with me and whoever listens to this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This this has been absolutely incredible. And hopefully we can talk again soon. Maybe it'll be about that topic. <laughs> Fructose
0: there you go. I hope so. I hope so. All right.
2: That'd be wonderful.
0: Well, bye for now. Thanks again for having me. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com and always remember you got this